Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Once you've found that, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading uh, responsibly from 42, 42 down through 45, 45. I'll begin in verse 42, and uh, we'll read verses 43 and 45 out loud. I'll read verses 42 and 44 uh, uh, by myself. We can follow along there in your Bibles. Beginning in 42, the Bible says, But Jesus called them to him and said unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. Together, 43. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. This morning we'll continue with our series, Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us today. As we continue to look at the hero of the Bible, uh, the man that can be found in every book, uh, either uh, directly or, Lord, uh, maybe a little more covertly, but Lord, you're there. You're, you're there in every book. And the Bible was written about you. The Bible was written because you um, are worthy. You're worthy of our honor, our praise, our glory. Uh, your honor, you're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of us uh, uh, being transformed into your very image. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage us through the preaching this morning to see uh, an area that flies in the face of everything that logic uh, of humanity dictates. But Lord, a truth that is very uh, 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 dear to you and Lord, a truth that you preached regularly to your followers. And Lord, a, a truth that is very important for us if we're going to be true disciples of you today. So as we look at this morning at your word, help us, God, to be challenged by what we hear. And Lord, may there be changes made as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself why the Bible contains four different accounts of the life of Jesus? Maybe when you were a young Christian, maybe you are a young Christian, and you say, why is there four different books that tell almost the same stories? How many of you at some point along the way have wondered that? Would you raise your hand? I have wondered that, all right? None of the rest of you ever even thought about that, why they tell the same story over and over and over and over again? Uh, you're, I guess you, uh, either you're, you don't care enough to know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that's not the case, Amen. I'm going to be nice to you this morning. Or maybe you're just way smarter than I am. That's probably what it is. Um, Doesn't it seem, though, let's stop and think about this for a minute. Doesn't it seem sort of redundant to tell the same stories four times in a row and to put all that in the the Bible? Um, While all four books do have stories that are unique to just that book, a large majority of the stories can be found in all four books. Definitely Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John went out of his way to make sure he included stories that the other three didn't. But, but even a lot of what's in John can be found in the other Gospels. So they all um, uh, end the same way as well, don't they? The arrest of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus... And uh, most of them contain a challenge from Jesus at the end. Now, let me give you some reasons this morning for four separate accounts 
of the same story, okay? Uh, the first reason I want to give you is that the four Gospels are the epicenter of the Bible. The four Gospels are the epicenter of the Bible. If you want to know what it all pivots around, what it all rotates around, there are uh, arrows in the Old Testament that all point to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All, all 39 Old Testament books are saying there is a coming Messiah. There is a coming Messiah. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us about that coming Messiah. All of the books after the book of John, point back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all say, hey, this is how we're going to live because of the fact that the Messiah came. And so the 39 books prior to Matthew point to it. Let's see, the 23 books after John point back at it. It is the epicenter of the Bible. Now, the second reason I believe there are four separate accounts of uh, the life of Jesus is that the four Gospels are repeated for sake of emphasis, for sake of emphasis. Um, when the Bible mentions something once, it's important. When it mentions it twice, you better pay even closer attention. When it mentions it three times, God's not just putting it there uh, for redundancy. He's putting it in there to say, this is really, really important. But the life of Jesus is not found once, twice, or three times. It's told in great detail Four separate times, back to back to back to back, in the way our Bible is laid out. And so the Bible has all four of the Gospels put in there for uh, emphasis sake. It is as though God is trying to say to humanity, this has a gigantic exclamation point on it. This is super important, super important. One of the things I love about the Spanish language is that if a sentence ends in an exclamation point, it also begins with an upside-down exclamation point. As though to say, before you even begin the sentence, hey, what you're about to read, read with a lot of exclamation. Uh, questions are uh, started and ended the same way, but God is putting a large exclamation point right in the Bible and saying, I am giving this to you four times because it is oh so very important. Uh, the four Gospels, uh, let me give you another reason here, here why there are four different accounts of the life of Jesus. The four Gospels offer four different perspectives. Four different perspectives, okay? So let me give you the books and let me give you the perspective of which we're looking at the life of Jesus. In the book of Matthew, we see that he is a king or a conquering king. So the whole book is written uh, portraying Jesus primarily as a king. Mark portrays Jesus as a servant, as a servant or a slave. Luke portrays Jesus as the son of man. And John portrays Jesus as the son of God. Now, stop and look at that for a minute. You see Mark, or rather Matthew, king, Mark, servant. You know what we call that? We call that a paradox. Look at Luke. Luke portrays Jesus as the son of man. You say, what does that mean? That means he was born of mankind. John portrays him as the son of God or the son of deity. You say, well, pastor, those two are opposite of each other. They're diametrically opposed. That's what makes Jesus so awesome. Now, uh, this morning, we're going to focus on how Matthew and Mark look at Jesus. And that brings us to the title of the sermon. So the title of the mini-series is, Who is Jesus? The title of the sermon is this, King of Heaven, Servant of Man. King of Heaven, 
servant of man. How can someone rule the entire universe and everything in it, have created the universe and everything in it, but yet be the basis, the lowest of them and serve them? You could uh, scratch out the word servant and write the word slave, slave of man. To be more honest about how Mark portrays Jesus, he portrays him as a slave. Now, I propose that in order to rule uh, the light, you must learn how to serve in the shadows. You want to rule in the light? You got to learn how to serve in the shadows. Um, one of the greatest examples of this in the Old Testament is Joseph. Joseph is an Old Testament picture of Jesus Christ. He was sold for money just like Jesus was. He uh, was a slave before he was a king. And Jesus uh, was a slave. And then because of that, he has become King Jesus. And Joseph learned how to be a slave, scrubbing floors and and cleaning things and doing what he was told as a slave in Potiphar's uh, court, living in the shadows and doing what was right in the shadows before he ever ruled in the light. And I propose this morning that it's no different for you and I. Before we're ever going to effectively lead or rule in the light, we must first learn how to serve in the shadows. Before uh, you can lead, you must learn how to follow. And while you lead others, you must learn how to follow your Savior. I propose that Jesus Christ is the King of heaven and earth, and at the same time, He is the servant of mankind. How is Jesus your King? Well, He made you. He made you. John 1 talks about Jesus being a king. We'll look at this more in detail next week. But it says that uh, uh, John 1, 1 through 5 parallels with Genesis 1, 1 through 5. And all things were made by him who Jesus and without him was not everything made that was made. Everything material that exists, everything of substance that exists, of matter that exists. Jesus Christ was involved in making that. So how is he your king? Well, he made you. He made you. Um, And not only did he make you, but he made the moral laws that are supposed to govern you. You think of a king over a country. The king of that country may not make all the people in that country, but the king of that country is responsible for creating the laws and executing the laws that those people live under. And God made the moral laws of mankind. And for many of them, he wrote them on the table of your heart. Did you know that we don't need a law on the books that says it's wrong to commit murder? We all know in our heart it's wrong to commit murder. And for someone who says, oh, well, I don't believe in believing in God, then how do you explain a moral code that has been inscribed on the heart of every single person that's ever lived? God made the moral law, and for those that he maybe didn't inscribe in our heart, he had pinned down in a book called the Bible. And whether or not someone chooses to listen to it, he to it, obey it, it's still there, and it's still the moral law for humanity. How is Jesus your king? Well, he made you, and he made the moral law that governs you. How is Jesus your servant, you ask? Well, he humbled himself to die for you. I'd say that qualifies him to be a slave. He allowed my sin that has enslaved me to be taken on himself, and he allowed it to enslave him and kill him. How else is Jesus your servant? Well, even today, Jesus is the one that serves up the air that you're breathing in and out of your lungs. Every breath you take. 
Jesus gave you. How else is he your servant? The health that you have, whether it's poor or great, whether your body aches right now, or maybe you have some malady or infirmity uh, that others don't have. The fact that you're here and you're in this auditorium right now, you have some sibilance of health, and God gave you that health. He is serving you by continuing to provide that to you. How else is Jesus your servant this morning? Well, he ministers to your broken heart. Ministers to your shattered dreams. Pat would have not been able to stand up here and sing that song if she wasn't relying on the King of Heaven to serve her broken heart as she's travailed and gone through all kinds of life hurts lately. And many of you have made it to this point in your Christian life and you're sitting here today because the Comforter uh, God has given, Jesus has given us the gift of the Comforter of the Holy Spirit to comfort you and guide you and lead you and help you through your trials. Why? Because King Jesus is also your servant. This morning I propose that to be great, you must first learn how to abase yourself. To be to truly lead, you must learn uh, how to serve those whom you lead. And if you're taking notes, I would encourage you in the introduction to write these two words down. Servant leadership. Servant leadership. You lead... By serving those who you lead. Not just by dictating and bossing around and throwing your weight around. Servant leadership. Husbands, do you serve your wives? Yes, they're they're to submit to you, Ephesians 5 tells us. But you're to serve them. It's a lot easier for them to submit to you if you're serving them than it is if you're not serving them. Um, uh, Parents, you're to serve your children. Sometimes serving your children, they don't like what needs to be done to serve them, but you are to serve your children. Employer, you're a boss here today or a manager at your job and you have people that answer to you. Do you serve those who follow you? Would they label you as a servant leader? Sunday school teacher, are you serving the people in your class? Bus uh, uh, pastor or bus director or bus captain or bus worker, are you serving those that ride in on our bus? Are you giving to their needs? Are you loving them? Are you helping them? Uh, God says that Jesus was a king, but he was also a slave. And the two, while they may seem diametrically opposed, while they may seem paradoxical in nature, the one cannot exist without the other. Now, this morning we're going to look at two thoughts about uh, two main principal thoughts, several uh, thoughts under those, but two main principal thoughts this morning as we consider the question, who is Jesus? And we look at how that he is the king of heaven and the servant of man. Point number one is simply this. Jesus is the king of heaven. Jesus is the king of heaven. Let me give you a letter A right off the bat here. Notice Christ's Lineage. Turn over to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to finish the sermon where we began it, but turn over to Matthew chapter 1 and look with me at verse number 1. I'm going to ask another question here. We'll see maybe if we get a little more participation this time. All right. How many of you here have ever wondered, why in the world does Matthew and Luke contain a long list of really hard names to read? Anybody here ever wondered that? Good night. I remember being a boy. I went to church, and uh, this pastor got up and he preached really a really powerful sermon about go. You know, you need to read your Bible and pray every day. 
And man, the conviction of God just swooped all over me. I went down to the altar and I, after the sermon, I got down on my knees and I said, God, I am going to read my Bible every single day. I was like 11 years old. And so I went home and I opened up my Bible to Matthew chapter 1. I thought, the New Testament's easier than the Old Testament, so I'm going to start at the beginning. And after I finished chapter 1, as an 11-year-old boy, I said, Huh? I can't do this. And for years, I'd, when I was reading through my Bible, I'd get to the names and I would do what you do. I would speed read. You know, that's where your finger moves like this. And someone asks you a question, you look up, but your finger keeps moving. You know what I mean? And so, um, but why are those names there? Now, the Bible tells us that, the, that, that all of the Bible is profitable and that none of it returns void. So even the genealogies carry great importance. And I'm going to show you something really neat here uh, this morning about the genealogy in Matthew. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Look here. The, the son of David. The son of Abraham. Now, that verse is so important to understanding the rest of the genealogy. I'm not going to read the genealogy this morning because I probably still can't do it. But uh, uh, verse 1 tells us that what this genealogy is about. It's giving us the lineage of Jesus Christ uh, as it pertains to uh, him being the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, the lineage that's given in the book of, uh, I believe it's, it's either Luke or John, it goes all the way back to Adam. I believe it's the book of Luke. Uh, all the way back to Adam, and it shows us how that Jesus is not just the son of Abraham, but Jesus is the son of Adam, and then even Adam being the son of God. And so it goes all the way back. So uh, there is a point that's trying to be made that fits inside that emphasis of Jesus as a king. Now, look here, considering the lineage of Christ, it says here that Jesus is the son of David, the son of David. Now, one of the requirements to be a king was that you had to come from royal blood. Call that blue blood, purple blood? What's that called? Blue blood, right? Blue blood. So Jesus came from blue blood. He came from royal blood. And Matthew is getting ready to lay out a case for Jesus being king in several ways here. I'm going to show you some things this morning that may surprise you, open your eyes, it may wow you a little bit. But Matthew begins his quest to show Jesus as a king by showing that he is the son of David, the son of David. Now, God made a promise to David, and that was this. We call it the Davidic covenant or the Davidic promise, the promise to David. And that was that his his lineage would rule and reign forever, would rule and reign forever. In fact, when uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam sat on the throne and tried to raise everybody's taxes and the country split They didn't take Rehoboam and throw him off the throne, put a new king on. Ten of the twelve tribes left, and Judah and part of Benjamin stayed so that David would continue to have a king uh, rule and reign as part of his lineage. You say, well, what happened when uh, Judah got drug away to Babylon? Well, uh, 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 the, 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 the Davidic line continued to have babies, and Jesus was born through that line, and one day... Jesus is going to sit on this earth. We looked at this a few weeks ago in Revelation and rule for a thousand years. And then he's going to sit in the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and earth. And he'll continue to sit on David's throne and rule. So Jesus comes from royal blood. But notice there it also says that he is the son of Abraham. Now, just like God made a promise to David, he also made a promise to Abraham. 
We find that back in Genesis 12. You can look at that later. But in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that all that through his seed, all the people of the world would be blessed. Now, that doesn't just mean the Jews. That doesn't just mean those that came from Isaac and Jacob and the 12, tri- the 12 children, 12 boys that were born to him. That doesn't just mean Ishmael and all of those that would be born to Ishmael and all the other children that Abraham would later have with a, a separate wife. That also means you and I who have no geneo- genealogical tie back into Abraham. You say, well, how am I blessed? Check this out. Did Jesus die for you? Jesus is the son of Abraham. Through the seed of Abraham, you have been tied into the family of Abraham through the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed, that royal blood that was shed for me and you. So Jesus' lineage, Christ's lineage. Now, you put the word Christ there for the subpoints on purpose. And if you've never heard this, this, this is neat. The Old Testament word for Christ is Messiah or the promised one. And the New Testament Greek word uh, is translated as Christ. They're the same word, just a difference in translation between Hebrew to English and Greek to English. But from Hebrew to Greek, the word translated from Greek back into Hebrew, New Testament, Old Testament, Messiah and Christ were known to be the same person. So we're looking at the promised one, his lineage. When we get to uh, uh, where we talk about Jesus being a servant, we're going to change that from Christ to Jesus, because Jesus uh, was a servant. Um, let me uh, give you a letter B here. Christ the lawmaker. Christ the lawmaker. Now, in our system of government, how many branches do we have? Three. They are, you guys know them? The executive, the legislative, and the judicial, right? If you don't know that, you need to know that. You need to be involved in your government. Okay? You need to follow what's going on in our government. Um, now, you don't need to let it be all-consuming. All right, Some of you live on the CNN, MSNBC, or Fox News apps all the time. Cut it out. All right, You, you need to be more focused on Jesus than the, the politics. However, we have a duty and obligation to be involved in politics and to vote. Okay, Christians need to vote. We have elections coming up soon, midterm elections uh, if you're not registered to vote, go register to vote and vote. Do your civil duty. You have a, an obligation to vote. But uh, in our government, we have three branches of government. Under a, a, a monarch rule or a kingly rule, the king or queen does all three. He makes the laws, he enforces the laws, and he interprets the law. So he gets to make the law. He gets to tell you what he meant when he made the law. And he gets to enforce the law. He gets to do all three in a monarchical rule or a kingly rule. Now, Jesus is our king. Part of him being our king is that he gets to make the laws. Let me show you something here out of Matthew that is fascinating. And if you attend our Wednesday evening Bible study, this will be reviewed for you. But for the rest of you, this will be new material. Moses, um, Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the New Testament lawgiver. You know about Moses, how he was the one who gave the law in the Old Testament? Jesus is a better version of Moses. Let me give you some uh, parallels between Moses and Jesus here. Uh, Moses came out of Egypt. He came out of Egypt. Uh, he um, uh, was born in Egypt. He would lead the people out of Egypt. Uh, Moses crossed the Red Sea. 
He crossed the Red Sea. You know the story there. They were pinned against the Red Sea. He held up his rod. The Red Sea split. They walked uh, uh, between the two. How many of you have seen Charleston Heston's version of this? Okay. Uh, but uh, Red Sea was split. They walked across. Uh, wilderness for 40 years. Wilderness for 40 years. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And then uh, he went up on the mount and he received the law from the mount. He received the law from the mount. Now, Moses was the Old Testament lawgiver or the one God gave the law through. Jesus is the New Testament lawgiver. Let's notice some parallels here. And all of these parallels can be found in Matthew. Notice about Jesus that he also came out of Egypt. You remember that uh, when uh, Herod was trying to uh, have baby Jesus eradicated in Matthew chapter 2, you may remember, and I believe Matthew's the only one that gives this account, uh, uh, an angel came to him at night and said, take the young child and his mother to Egypt and stay there till I tell you to leave. And they lived in Egypt until Herod died. Why? So that Jesus could have this parallel with Moses. Uh, Jesus uh, was baptized in the Jordan River. His baptism in the Jordan River. So Moses crossed the Red Sea. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. Uh, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. And, and uh, we see here in Matthew, he's led, in, up, led up into the wilderness of the spirit to be tempted of the devil. And I believe it's Matthew chapter four. And he is there for 40 days and uh, he is fasting and praying uh, uh, in the wilderness and probably the same wilderness that Moses was in. And then notice, lastly, that he gives the law from the mountain. Matthew chapter five, six and seven. We find the sermon on the mount where Jesus stands and he gives his version of the law. And by the way, in that sermon, he would say, I did not come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. Let me give you some ways that Jesus is greater than Moses. Go ahead and throw that up there for me. Jesus is greater than Moses. How is Jesus greater than Moses? Well, uh, Jesus actually delivers from slavery. Not just the slavery of the Egyptians, the slavery of sin. You see, we're all born a slave to sin. You say, I'm not a slave to sin. Okay, then stop sinning. Never commit another sin ever again. Or at least go a year without committing a sin. Anybody here up for the challenge? You know why? Because we're a slave to sin. Now, Jesus' death on the cross has given you victory from the consequences of eternal sin and will one day give you a body that never commits a sin again. So Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses, giving of the law, condemned their sin. Jesus offered deliverance from sin. Next notice, uh, give new divine teaching. Give new divine teaching. So Moses came along and he gave them uh, a, a law, but Jesus would come along and he would give them grace. Next notice, uh, Jesus would save from sin. He would save from sin. And so Moses just gave the law and enforced it. He had no way of, uh, of saving them from the law, their inability to keep the law. But Jesus saves us and he gives us his grace uh, so that we can have victory over sin, uh, uh, victory over even particular sins in our lives. Next, notice that Jesus initiated a new covenant, and this would be the covenant of grace, the covenant of grace. Next, letter C, notice, uh, well, let's leave that up there for a moment, those that are copying that down. I'm going to wait for people to look up this way when they're done. All right, letter C, notice Matthew's layout. 
Matthew's layout. All this plays into how that Jesus is a king. Now, I'm going to give you substantive uh, application to your life in the latter half of the sermon, but the first half of the sermon sets up the latter half here, okay? Uh, the book of Matthew has a very interesting layout to it. Uh, the, a chap, the introduction to the book is in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Uh, in that section, we find where uh, the, the genealogy is. We find the story of Jesus' birth, uh, him being taken into Egypt. Uh, so chapters 1, uh, 2, and 3 uh, contain the introduction to the book. Now, uh, there are five clear sections, five clear sections that uh, go throughout the rest of the book. That would be chapters 4, and I'm going to give you these five sections in just a minute. But chapters 4 through chapters 25 contain five clear-cut sections to the book that are marked with uh, this telling of stories about the theme of that section, and that the, the section ends with Jesus' teaching. All five sections contain stories and then teaching, and then the next section opens with more stories, and then teaching, and all five are that way, okay? So all five uh, sections are clearly marked, and um, uh, uh, then the conclusion of the book is chapters 26 through 28, chapters 26 through 28. Now, how many books did God have Moses write at the beginning of the Bible? Five. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Right? Because Moses was the lawgiver. How many sections are there in the book that paints Jesus as a king? Five. You think that's an accident? That's not an accident. God is trying to make a clear point here about Jesus. He is a king. He is a king. Um, let me give you the five uh, sections here. Notice first, uh, the first section of the book, the announcement of God's kingdom. The announcement of God's kingdom. This can be found in chapters 4 through 7. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus introduces some new laws that raise the standards. Uh, we, we have a problem in our church culture world, uh, not this church, but the church culture world at large, especially here in the U.S. And here is the attitude. Um, I don't need to worry about holding my life up to a particular standard because I live under grace and not the law. So that means I can dress how I want, I can listen to what I want, I can say whatever I want because we're now under grace and not under the law. And i got to tell you, that's a terrible, terrible, terrible attitude to have. And it doesn't fit the Scriptures. Now, uh, Matthew's four through, Matthew chapter 4 through 7, we find the introduction or the announcement of God's kingdom. But what we also find is that when Jesus comes on the scene and he teaches in Matthew chapter 5, we find that he takes the standard given in the Old Testament and he raises the bar. He raises the bar. Uh, write this quote down. Grace requests more than the law requires. Grace requests more than the law requires. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, the law says thou shalt not kill. Jesus comes behind and says, okay, it isn't just about killing. It's about hating your brother. If you hate your brother, you're viewed in the eyes of God as a murderer. Now, I would say that the grace has a higher standard than the law. Now, the, the short-term consequences are removed. 
And so people think that because they're not immediately punished for breaking the law the way they were in the Old Testament, that somehow that means God's dropped the standard. But no, God's up the standard while he's removed that uh, short-term consequence of, 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 of heavy hand-dropping of God, and he's replaced that with a more subtle consequence. Now if you hate your brother, you experience severe relational pain. And death comes from that. If you, uh, 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 here's another one, Matthew 5, 28. If you look on a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. You've committed adultery with her in your heart. So what's the Bible say there? In the Old Testament, the standard was adultery. In the New Testament, it's you don't even look at a woman with lust. He's raised the standard. Now, the consequence isn't the same. You're not drug out of town and stoned the way you were in the Old Testament. Thank you, sir. But in the New Testament, if you look on a woman with lust, oh boy, God views you as an adulterer or someone who's living uh, in the same type of sin as adultery. So, the announcement of God's kingdom. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 says this, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Next, notice the actions of God's kingdom. The second section of the book is marked in Matthew's Matthew chapters 8, 9, and 10. Uh, Matthew chapters 8, 9, and 10. Now, Jesus walked off the mount where he gave this new law, uh, or this completing law, and immediately, what did he do? He began to love on the rejected and broken people of society. In fact, if you go to Matthew chapter 8, you can do this later, but you go to Matthew chapter 8, he comes off the mountain, and I'm going off my memory here, but I believe the first thing he did was he healed lepers. So what are the actions of God's kingdom? It's to love the broken. It's to love the unlovable. Now, I'm not throwing stones at other churches, but many churches have quit running buses. Can I tell you something about our bus ministry? It's expensive. Our buses are relatively new, but they still break down. Um, We had animals come up under our bus and eat through some of the wiring. That's not a problem with the bus being faulty. That's just animals vandalizing our buses. And now it's been in the shop for three weeks, and we're... You know, it took us a long time to even figure out what was wrong with it and get it fixed. A lot of pastors will just scratch the bus ministry because it's a headache and it's expensive. But you know what those buses do for White Oak Baptist Church? It helps us to reach the broken of society. It helps us get people in the church that, boy, they, their mom and dad either have no interest in getting them here or can't get them here. And I believe that if Jesus was pastoring in 2018 in the U.S. of A., he would have a bus ministry. I really do. I believe that with all my heart. He would go out and he'd reach the broken. If he didn't have a bus ministry, he'd have another way of getting them here. But uh, he would do that. And, uh, you know, let it cost us a lot of money. It, it, it fits within the model of Christ to love the broken of society, to love those that were rejected. And, by the way, it isn't just about a, a money class or a wealth class. Matthew, who wrote this book, was a wealthy man but rejected because he was a tax collector. And Jesus looked at this man who was rejected and sitting on the societal outside and said, come follow me and I will teach you. What do we learn from this is that Jesus reached the uh, irreligious and infirmed because they were destitute, they were depressed, and they were desperate for real change. So we uh, we see the actions of God's kingdom. Next notice the attitudes toward God's kingdom. So chapters 8 through 10 talk about all the broken people that Jesus healed. 
and showing them that, hey, being a king isn't about being worshipped, just sitting there and being, you know, and, and, and having people serve you. Being a king is getting down and serving the needs of others and those that are broken and rejected by society. And I got to tell you, chapters 11 through 13, they lay out for us the different responses to that. Some people were positive about this approach. Some were unsure of, of what to do with Jesus and his approach. And some were flat out negative and rejected his approach. But none of these responses surprised Jesus. In fact, he would spend the teaching time marking the end of the section by telling parables. Telling parables about these three different responses. Next, notice the anticipation about God's king. The fourth section of the book is marked by the anticipation about God's king. Matthew chapters, Matthew chapters 24 through 20 talk about the different expectations that different groups of people had for the coming king. Based on their acceptance of Jesus being the king, they responded accordingly. Some people think that the disciples just had it all figured out from the beginning. Yeah, Jesus is coming. He's going to die. He's going to raise from the dead. He's going to have, you know, he's going to have this all figured out. But that's not true. The disciples early on in following Jesus into the first couple of years and even toward the end, they thought that Jesus was going to lead a political revolt and they were going to help him lead this political revolt to the place where uh, Jesus had to tell Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Why did he tell him that? Because Peter told him, no, you can't go die. you got to lead this political revolt. And Jesus said, no, that's not why I'm here. And Satan's using your mouth to try to change my plan and woo me away to do something different and to short-circuit God's plan. I came not to be a political king. I came first to be a spiritual king by dying on the cross. The, the disciples would have a hard time embracing that, but would slowly warm up to it. But the Pharisees, who also were looking for this Messiah, this Christ, to be a political king, they flat out rejected Jesus. And the anticipation about God's king, we see how the anticipation was for these these Pharisees. They were looking for this king to not be born in a stable, but to be born in a palace. This king not to be riding a donkey into Jerusalem, but to be riding a white horse and to be leading an army behind him and to stand up to the political powers of Caesar at that time. But Jesus uh, came in different and because he did not meet their anticipation, they took him and they killed him. The fifth section of the book is marked by the authority of God's king. The authority of God's king. Notice that, and that's Matthew chapters uh, 21 through 25, we find King Jesus being nailed to a cross. Can I tell you something this morning? You can't kill the king of kings and keep him dead. They killed him, but he didn't stay dead. The Bible tells us that his soul went uh, down into the ground, uh, into the underworld, and after three days and three nights of laying in a borrowed tomb, it became borrowed because he stood up and the stone rolled away, not because he needed it to roll away for himself. It rolled away so others could go in and see that it was empty, and he walked out victorious as a king. Who is Jesus? Well, he is the king of heaven and earth. Who is Jesus? Number two, notice he is the servant of man. He is the servant of man. Now, Mark's book tells a very, tells the same story of Jesus, but offers a very, very, very different perspective. Turn over to Mark chapter one with me.
Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Anybody see a genealogy in Mark chapter 1? Look real close. How about Mark chapter 2? How about the first couple of, first two or three chapters? Any genealogy about Jesus? You know why? Nobody cares about the parents of a slave. He's a slave. You don't care about where he came from. Um, slaves throughout history have been treated just like a piece of meat or another animal. Oh, and by the way, if you think that we've, we've gotten past slavery as a humanity, you're living oblivious. There are more slaves on the earth today than all of the slaves combined when they were collected in Africa and brought over here to the New World. There are more slaves today than all of those slaves put together. You say, oh, that's not true. It's true. Go look it up. Between human trafficking and sex slaves, there are so, there's a huge problem in this world. Not, and somewhat even in our country, but more so in the Middle East in that 1040 uh, uh, latitude, longitude window. There's a huge problem with slavery today. Can I tell you about slaves? Nobody cares about their parents. Nobody cares about anything of them. Mark portrayed Jesus as a slave, and in that, he didn't give us a genealogy of Jesus. In fact, the details of, of, of him being a king are greatly omitted out of the book entirely. And some of the same stories are told, but with a perspective and an emphasis being put on Jesus as a slave. Uh, let me give you letter A, Jesus' emotions. Jesus' emotions. By the way, Jesus was just a regular common name back then. It wasn't a name that was set aside or reserved or made up when, uh, when, when the Christ came along. It was just another person's name. It would be like naming somebody Joe or Mike today. We've got a ton of mics in this church, by the way. Uh, we thought about having an open mic Sunday. <laughs> well, we have them come up and um, not sing, though, because some of them can't sing, but uh, maybe share a testimony. Amen. But um, Jesus was just like another name back then. And uh, people would say, uh, hear the name of Jesus, and they didn't really think anything extra about it. Jesus' emotions. What kind of emotions does a servant or a slave have? Imagine having every one of your decisions made for you. How would that make you feel? Your will and your, your power of choice is removed entirely. Where will you sleep? Where you will sleep, Where you uh, uh, when you will sleep... Uh, when you will wake, what you will wear, when you will bathe, what you will eat, when you will eat, how you will eat, how much you will eat, where you will work, how long you will work, uh, when you will take breaks or if you will take breaks, uh, uh, who you talk to, how long you're allowed to talk to them, uh, if you will get married, to whom you will get married, if you get to have children, and if you get to keep your children once they're alive. Those are the decisions that a slave owner makes for a slave. Now, if that was you, how would that make you feel? You see, because while you can take the choices away from a slave, you cannot remove the emotions from a slave. A slave is going to feel what he feels. And while there may become some level of normalcy to being a slave, there is still a dark, depressing cloud that hangs over the head of a slave. Uh, turn over to Mark chapter 3, verse 5. 
Notice here, I don't think this will be on the screen, but notice here his anger. His anger. Jesus had uh, anger, as any slave would have uh, if they were alive. And by the way, this is the only place in the Bible we find that tells us that Jesus got angry. Uh, the only place. Some people assume his anger at other points, but this is the only place where the Bible tells us that Jesus got angry. Mark 3, verse 5 says, And when he looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he said, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. Jesus saw the, the hardness of their hearts. He saw their attitude. And the servant Jesus, the slave Jesus who had left the throne of heaven where he was king to come be born on an earth to peasant parents, to be raised in a simple home, to live a simple man's life, to work a commoner's job, and then to begin a ministry where he would serve uh, the spiritual needs of the broken. He looked out on these uh, the, these these men who were uh, pious and pompous and and nasty in their attitude toward him, and he looked at their hard hearts, and the Bible says it made him angry, as any slave would feel. He was angry. Next notice is disappointment. Turn over to Mark chapter 8, verse 12. The Bible says there, and he sighed deeply in his spirit. You know why you sigh deeply in your spirit? Because you're disappointed. My wife is like, I think, most every woman. I don't want to put all women in a box. I understand there are exceptions to, to anything, right? But my wife's like most every woman. Her emotional sensories are a lot higher than mine. If I'm walking down the hall at home and I go, you know what she says? What's wrong? And it may be that nothing's wrong. I just need to take a deep breath. She's all over it. If I'm muttering something under my breath, it's okay to talk to yourself. Just don't re- reply to yourself, right? If I'm muttering something under my breath, what are you talking about? What's that about? It's not about you, I promise. Okay? I'm not like none of that. Okay? But, but my wife's not alone in that. Many, many, many others are that way as well. And and, and Jesus here, he sighed deep in his spirit, not because he needed to take a deep breath, but because of his disappointment. Look back at the verse. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and saith, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? He's just frustrated with them. Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. So his disappointment, looking at the emotions of a slave or a servant. Next notice in Mark 8.31, his pain and suffering, his pain and suffering. Here Jesus is teaching his disciples in Mark chapter 8. I believe at this point he's left Galilee and he's heading toward Jerusalem, this section of the book. It says in verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Must suffer many things. You know what servants or slaves do? They suffer. They suffer. I think of an Egyptian taskmaster standing over a Hebrew slave with a whip in his hand. Slicing the back open because the slave isn't moving hard enough. Then I picture Jesus as he was taken out back by Pilate's order, stripped naked, strung up, where his skin was stretched out, tradition tells us, and beaten with a cat of nine tails. Just like a slave. Just like a servant. You say, well, why would Jesus do that? Because someone had to serve us. 
we had any chance of going to heaven. Back in Mark 8.31, we also see his rejection. As if suffering and pain wasn't enough, he was rejected. Look here. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders, of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. You get that hint of him being a king there at the end of the verse. But he's suffering. He's rejected. Isaiah 53, we looked at last week, talked about how that Jesus was rejected. So we see Jesus' emotions. Notice Jesus' ethics. Jesus' ethics, letter B. Look over at Mark chapter 9 for me. Here we find the disciples who are still thinking that Jesus is going to be that political savior, that political king. And they're walking from point A to point B. And they kind of separate themselves from Jesus a little bit. And they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. You know, not the heavenly kingdom, the political kingdom that they hope he sets up. And it's like, you guys don't realize that he's God, right? He knows what you're talking about, even though you're 20 steps ahead or 20 steps behind. And you're whispering. He, he, he's God. Even if your body language is right, he still knows what you're talking about. Look at Mark chapter 9, and we see the, the ethics of a slave. It says here, and he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, what was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? Now, he knows the answer to the question. This is God asking Adam in the Garden of Eden, why aren't you wearing any clothing, or why are you naked? Jesus already knew the answer, or God already knew the answer. He was wanting Adam and Eve to be honest. And here Jesus just, he's asking the question he knows the answer to. He wants them to be honest. Look at verse 40, 34. But they held their peace. For by, the way, for by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. They didn't want to answer the question. This is like when you ask your kids uh, who broke the vase at the end of the hall, and they're both kind of responsible. And instead of blaming each other, they've just admitted they're not going to talk. They just, you know, they go silent on you. And so he's saying, hey, what were you guys talking about back there? Uh, nothing. <laughs> um, and, and Jesus says to them in verse 35, And he sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. What are the ethics of a servant? To serve. To take care of the needs of others. Jesus said, look, you guys, you're so concerned with being the top dog. You're so concerned with being in charge. You're so concerned with influence and getting other people to follow you and, and, and serve you and let you lead them. He said, you got it all wrong. You want to fight over a title or a name or a position of authority. He said, you got to realize that if you're going to serve or you're going to be a leader, you got to learn how to serve. And what are the ethics of a slave? What are the ethics of a servant? That when someone comes to the room that there are a subordinate to, they take 
care of that every need. It's a waiter or a waitress or a server at a restaurant that comes by and fills up your drink before it gets less than half full or constantly waits on your every need. Hey, my meat uh, could be cooked a little better or my uh, uh, potatoes were cold when they came out. And their attitude is whatever I got to do to make your dining experience superb, I'm all over it. And that's a good server. And the Bible says that it talks about Jesus, how that he was a servant. And by the way, Jesus didn't just talk about this in theory. He did it. He did it. You remember in the upper room, we see the picture, uh, uh, whoever it is that painted that big picture. I don't care about the picture because that's not what they look like anyway. But uh, the picture of them in the upper room and they're sitting there and they're eating the Lord's Supper. And, and, and after Jesus ate uh, the Lord's Supper with them, he, got, he went and got a bowl of water and a towel. And he went around and he got down on his knees and he began to wash the feet of the disciples. I can't think of a more humiliating, abasing act to do than washing somebody's feet. Now, I got to tell you, I don't mind washing someone's feet. I don't want anybody touching my feet. On our way to our honeymoon, I looked at my bride still in her wedding dress in the car. And I said to her, I have one rule. You cannot touch the bottom of my feet. It is against the rules. I will become a completely different... I will become Mr. Hyde if you touch the bottom of my feet. Do not do that. And so for 11 years, she has still never touched the bottom of my feet. Glory, hallelujah. Uh, She is a great wife. Now, Jesus got down and he washed... They're nasty, soot-covered, dusty feet. You say, that's impressive, Pastor. You know what's even more impressive about it? Judas was still there. The man who was about to get up and go betray him and sell him and then walk into the garden and kiss him on the cheek. And Jesus had already pointed out that it was going to be Judas. And he got down and he washed even Judas's feet. You go back to Matthew 5 where he's giving his new law in verse 44 where he says to love your enemies. And then you go to Mark and you see where he's loving his enemies by washing his feet. Hours before the man would have him led away to be killed. Jesus' ethics. Let her see. We see our expectation. Our expectation. Look, look, Look back at Mark 10 where we started the message this morning. I finished with this. The emphasis of the book of Mark is Jesus being our servant or our slave. But Jesus called them to him and said unto them, verse 42, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. What he's saying here is that the model around you, the model you have witnessed, the model that you're familiar with, is that the great rule and the weak serve. That's the model. Is that not the model still today? The great rule and the the weak serve? Jesus says that model is broken and backwards. Look at verse 43. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. One of my favorite titles for where I stand is that I am your minister. Verse 44. And whosoever of you shall be the chiefest, the big shot, the, the, the big guy, the, the guy in charge, shall be servant of all. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. I didn't come here for you to serve me, but to minister. I came here to serve you and to give his life a ransom for many. How was Jesus the servant of man? He was the servant of man because he came to earth. He left heaven's throne where he was the king to become a slave, a servant to the humanity he created. The humanity that rebelled against him, that ran from him. He came to earth to to, to, to girdle up and wash their feet and serve their needs and touch their blinded eyes and heal their deaf ears and touch their tongue-tied tongues and to uh, touch the bodies of a leper and remove the leprosy and to take the lame man and give him the ability to be able to walk and to take a, a woman who had an issue of blood and, and, and heal her from that and to take a, a man's son who had died and give him life and to take another uh, man's daughter or a woman's daughter who had demons and cast out those demons and he came to serve the broken of society. And Jesus then looked at all of humanity past and all of humanity ahead and He said, they're broken because of sin. And the greatest thing I can do is to become their slave by hanging on a cross and to die for their sin. You say, you came you came in the door today and you think you're going to heaven because you're some kind of a good person. You live a good, cleaned up life. And God knows about every single sin that you've committed that is, that, that is hidden. We see, we focus on everyone else's bad and we focus on our good. And the Bible says that God know, not only knows our good, He knows our bad. And Jesus became a slave for you by dying on the cross. And your key to heaven is to trust Him with all your heart, and to believe that He lived, He died, He rose again for you. We call that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. You exercise faith in that, He will save your soul. One day you'll be able to get to heaven and you'll be able to worship Him as your King. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. Jesus Christ is the King of heaven, and yet He's the servant of man, a walking paradox. To the, those of you here today that have not put your faith and trust in Jesus, what are you waiting for? Why are you holding out? Boy, it's as simple as, call upon the name of the Lord, thou shalt be saved. Romans 10.13 tells us. A couple of verses prior in that passage, it says you've got to confess with your mouth and you've got to believe in your heart. It's that simple. You confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. You believe in your heart that He raised Him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. It is a done deal. You just have to call on His name with your faith. Trust in Him. If you're here today and you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus to save you, will you accept the fact that the King of Heaven became a servant for you? That He went through the misery of being a, 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 a slave He went through the suffering of dying for your sin. But then as a king, he stood up from the grave and he beat your death. He offers to you freely the gift of eternal life. Will you pray a prayer with me? Will you ask Jesus to save you? Will you just pray this prayer right where you're at, under your breath, in your heart? Mean it with your heart. Just say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that my sin carries the consequence of eternal hell. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me on the cross. Thank you for being my slave. Thank you for raising from the dead. I believe in you. I believe in you alone as my way to heaven. Give me the gift of eternal life. 
Jesus, I look forward to the day where I worship you in heaven as my king. With our heads bowed and eyes still closed, if you prayed that prayer and you prayed that prayer for the first time, you meant it with all your heart, I'd like to rejoice with you. In the privacy of the moment with everyone's heads bowed and eyes closed, would you just slip up your hand so I can see where you are and I can rejoice with you? I see one hand. Is there anyone else that says, I prayed that prayer today. I meant it with all my heart. I see another hand. Anyone else? You can put your hands down. Thank you so much. How many here today say, Pastor, coming into the service today, I, I already had trusted Christ as my Savior. I am on my way to heaven. If that's you, would you hold up your hand? I, I know I'm going to heaven. I've allowed Jesus' sacrifice to save my soul. Put your hands down, please. Thank you. How many here today say, Pastor, there are some uh, things that I'm doing in my leadership style that need to be cleaned up. God has given me leadership over an area or over people or children or a spouse. God's, got, God's given me a group of people to lead here at the church or at work or at home, uh, maybe in my neighborhood with an HOA, whatever it would be. And, Pastor, I'm not being the servant leader that Jesus was. Pastor, my view on this has been a little off. Needs to be at least be tweaked a little or totally overhauled somewhere in between. You say, Pastor, pray for me that God will help me to be that servant leader that He was. Bet you, you hold up your hand. I know that I need to do that very thing. Lord, I pray today you'd help us to follow your model. Thank you for being our servant. One day, Philippians two tells us that we'll worship you as our King. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. What a great day that's going to be. Help us, Lord, to Worship you as our king beginning now. And help us, Lord, to follow your model of leadership in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. The altar's open. The piano's playing. If you trusted Christ today as your Savior, Pastor Mike is standing down front. He would love to take the Bible and review with you your decision, help you to affirm that decision. If you've been saved and not yet been baptized, our baptismal waters are warm and ready. We would love to help you follow the Lord in that decision today. If you've been saved and baptized and you're interested in in getting information about our church as far as membership, we'd love to provide that to you as well. Pastor Mike's down front. He can help you with those things. Our altar is open so you can come and kneel and talk to the Lord about that in prayer. Let's make decisions for the Lord this morning.
Amen. You can look this way. Thank you for being in church this morning. Tonight, we're going to continue a, another series we're in entitled Learning to Love Reproof. And so uh, we'll be looking at that in great detail tonight. Uh, the title of the message is uh, The Sin of Self-Reliance, Learning to Rely on Yourself and How to Break Away from That. We're going to be looking at all kinds of different aspects of that. It'll really challenge you. I encourage you to be back tonight. Um, our choir practice is at 4.30. They're going to be going over our Christmas music Please, 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 we need men in this church to step up and be involved in that. You say, I'm terrified, I'm not sure I can do it, let me really push you. Be here tonight at 4.30 and be involved in that, get involved. And then our drama team will be meeting upstairs in the conference room at 4.30 as well. Church service at 6, uh, please be in your place. Great to have the visitors here today. Thank you for being here. Good. I uh, hope I get to shake your hand after church and talk to you for just a moment. But thank you for being here today. Um, uh, isn't God good? Let's sing God is so good. Just the first verse of that together. Ready? Here we go. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a good day.